This week on Dig Me Out. Didn't I go first last time? Okay, you want me to go first? I do. Okay. I need well, you to set this up. That doesn't that doesn't bode well. <laughs> Tim and Jay review Ruby Vroom by Soul Coughing. That's gonna take you back to Beelzebub. Get onto the bus. That's gonna make you stop. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 192. We're in our fourth season, counting down. We're only uh, eight slots away until we hit 200. That's when we get. That's when we hit the bonus money, Jay. So I'm uh, looking forward to that. Finally going to take that vacation. Where are we going? We're going to Denny's, Jay. We're going to Denny's. Wow. Yeah. Grand Slam. The Grand Slam breakfast. We split it, or do we each get one? No, we have to split an egg. Oh, okay. When I say Grand Slam, I mean we get an egg <laughs> with our bonus money at Denny's, <laughs> our our one hour vacation. So for Jay, uh, for Jay. So for this week, Jay, we are going back once again to 1994, as we have done so many times throughout uh, this season. It's the fourth season. It's 20 years since 1994, so it's a good time to revisit a lot of these albums and if you get a chance um stereo gum is a uh, a music website covers news and reviews and stuff like that they have a um a feature where they review albums that are 10 and 20 years old and uh, they've been covering uh, a number of albums that we've covered during this year and some of the bigger ones that we also haven't covered like lives throwing copper Stone Temple Pilots, some of the bigger records that came out in 1994. Uh, it's a good, it's a good read. I would suggest checking it out. And uh, former, uh, I'm not sure former actually, but uh, Columbus Alive writer Chris Deville, mm-hmm. who uh, I think might have written about our band back in the day. He's a writer for Stereo Gum, and he did a write up on uh, a couple of the albums that came out in 1994. So I would suggest uh, checking that out. This week we're going to tackle. Soul Coughing and their debut from 1994, Ruby Vroom. Jay, were you familiar with Soul Coughing? Sure. I went to college in the late 90s. Of course I was. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's that's a bit of an understatement. Uh, Soul Coughing was, I, I think, one of the bands that our radio station heralded. Or yeah. heralded. Um, there were a couple that we really got behind as a station and played the crap out of them. And Soul mm-hmm. Coughing was one of them. Our, our radio department or our music department uh, really pushed, especially this record. And then the, the next two that came out, uh, the singles for those. And uh, I don't think they ever ended up playing in Bowling Green. Um, I know they played the region. They might've played Cleveland or Detroit or one of those cities, um, but uh, never made their way to Toledo or Bowling Green as some of the other bands that, were heralded by uh, like Frank Black played Toledo back in the uh, back in the day. So some people made it out to that show that Frank Black was a big uh, artist for uh, our radio station. Jay, in terms of uh, of soul coughing, were you familiar with them as an entity or just or did you actually know the albums? Uh, I know some. I knew some of the songs. Okay. Um, I don't. You know, just. Didn't own any of the records, but I uh, had absorbed the songs uh, one way or the other over the years. Knew some of the album titles and covers. 
um, just from peripheral. But gotcha. uh, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's dive into the history of soul coughing. There might be some people out there who are not familiar like we are. And let's talk about the history of the band. History of the band. So soul coughing formed in New York City in 1992. Uh, it was uh, lead singer Mike Doty. He attended uh, college in uh, New York with uh, a friend of his, uh, Annie DeFranco. And while he was in college, he was a doorman at the Houston Street location of the Knitting Factory, which is a legendary club in New York. And as various musicians would come into the uh, club, both as, you know, to play or just to see other bands, he would meet people and he would start, you know, putting together a collection of artists to play with him. The first one was um, keyboard player and sampler Mark Degley and Tony, who had recently graduated uh, with a music composition degree. And had they had um, performed some John Zorn pieces together, which uh, if you're familiar with John Zorn, probably know that's pretty avant-garde music. Um, that group that they worked uh, together with also included Jeff Buckley. So... They started hanging out, not Buckley, but uh, Mark and, and Mike. They uh, started working on samples and from various records that Mark owned and then also from works, uh, orchestral works that he had written. And they started basically building songs um, from there and then Mike Doty adding the vocals on top of it. And then they added upright bass player Sebastian Steinberg and drummer Yuval Gabay. Uh, and they played their first gig as they're originally called M. Doherty's Soul Coughing at the Knitting Factory in June of 1992. And it was a late night slot on a Monday that nobody else wanted to play. And basically, he convinced his boss to let his band play. Um, and then within a year, they ended up getting s- signed to Slash Records, the s- subsidiary of Warner Brothers. Their first album came out in 1994. Uh, Ruby Vroom, it was produced by Chad Blake, who worked on a number of records. And then their follow-up record came out in 1996 called Irresistible Bliss. You might know that one, uh, listeners, from the single Super Bon Bon. And then their last record came out in 1998 called El Oso. And then that had the, I guess you'd say the most successful single, which was Circles, which was um, played on the radio, alternative radio, what was left of alternative radio in 1998. Uh, the band broke up in 2000. Now, there's two different stories in terms of why the band broke up. There's the story of they were fighting over songwriting credits and publishing. And then there's the story that um, M. Doherty broke up the band because he was feeling a bit... Uh, he was quite young. He was like 20, 22, and the guys he was playing with were a bit older than him. And he was feeling that they were taking advantage of him in terms of how they had structured the publishing and then also he had his own problems with drugs and alcohol and he felt like he needed to get out of that situation so the band broke up he hopped in a rental car and started playing acoustic shows with basically just his guitar and he had re- he had re- recorded a solo album in 1996 which the record label had rejected so he started selling it in CDRs in a plain sleeve um, as he was playing these shows. And he played covered 9,000 miles 
on the tour, booking it as he was going, and sold 20,000 copies of that record by himself. Which isn't bad when you're considering if you're selling a record for, you know, five or ten bucks and you sell it 20,000 copies, probably, you know, able to get your money back on whatever the recording costs were, and then some. So he was out without a label for about four years, and then he d- bumped into Dave Matthews, who signed him to um, his record label ATO, and he worked with Dan Wilson of Semisonic and produced the record Haughty Melodic, which had the single Looking at the World from a Bottom of a Well, which was used in Veronica Mars and Grey's Anatomy. And that's where, I guess you'd say, M. Dottie re- re- returned from obscurity. Okay. Uh, 2012, he put out a book called The Book of Drugs. And he, in 2013, crowdfunded an album remaking a number of soul-coughing songs. Uh, and then he has a new album out this September called Stellar Motel. Uh, the rest of the band, Mark... Degley and Tony moved on to compose film scores. Sebastian Steinberg uh, has recorded and toured with people like David Byrne, Dixie Chicks, Phil Selway of Radiohead, uh, Beth Orton, Fiona Apple, and Yuval Gabay formed a band called UV Ray and has been touring with various artists such as Suzanne Vega, They Might Be Giants, Ronnie Size, etc., etc., so that's the history of Soul Coughing and the various members of Soul Coughing. If you'd like to suggest an album for us to review, please visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We got a little bit of feedback on our Facebook page. Sean Michael Foster says, Top 10 record from the 90s. Well done. A near perfect live band as well. Joey Haney says, I love this record. I bought it after Irresistible Bliss and still listen to it to this day. All three of their albums are so cool and it's a damn shame they didn't continue. I suppose they were too smart and random for mainstream America while a band like Cake takes a lot from them but makes it more radio-friendly and girl-friendly. Rant aside, my favorite songs are Cassio Tone Nation and Bust to Beelzebub. And Scott Russell Hallgram says, one of my absolute favorites defines the summer of 1995 for me. These guys were from New York because a radio, st- but because a radio station in Minneapolis played the hell out of them, they were more popular there than anywhere. At one show at First Avenue, they announced from the stage, "It's good to be home." I don't think there's another album like this. This stands as a very unique and wonderful specimen. So there you go, Jay. Universal praise from our commenters on mm. on this album. And when I go to, uh, I did some Google searching because I was interested. I know there's a quite a bit of sampling on this record, but it's done in a, I guess, a non-traditional way, and we'll get into that. Um, I wanted to find like what the samples were because they're not listed. And when I found reviews of this record, you go to All Music, you go to Rolling Stone, you go to whatever, all like five out of five, four and a half out of five stars. So there's quite a bit of um, admiration for this record, Jay. Uh, so let's talk about whether or not we have admiration for Soul Coughing's Ruby Room, which, uh, just as a note, the title of the album comes from the one of the guys working on the record was Mitch Froom, F-R-O-O-M, and he had a daughter named Ruby Froom, F-R-O-O-M, and when one of the members of the band said it, he mispronounced it as Ruby Vroom, and they were like, that's the name of the album. So it's that's how the album got named. 
Jack. Okay. Yeah, Tim. Let's talk some soul coughing. So a lot of bands in the 90s with soul. You got your soul asylum. Mm. Soul to soul. Uh, collective soul. Collective soul. There you go. Does this band... Uh, we often make fun of bands. There were a lot of soul bands, a lot of bands with blue in the title. Those those things get a little bit derided. Head. Head. A lot of heads. Yes. Radiohead, Big Head 10, The Monsters. Head with an extra H. Tell me, what did you like and what didn't you like about this album, Jay? Let's start with what you liked first. <clears throat> didn't I go first last time? Okay. You want me to go first? I do. Okay. I need you well, to set this up. That doesn't that doesn't bode well. <laughs> All right, so I'll go first. Here's my take on this record in terms of um, what uh, what some of the other folks were saying. I, I do think that this is a a landmark record for the '90s. Um, in that it it's completely and wholly unique. I, I can't think of another band. You know, Cake is mentioned, but Cake to me is not doing the same thing as this band. Um, Cake is a little bit is driving more towards singles and and poppy music. You could say Eels are a band that sort of mines some of the same territory, but the the combination of M Doherty's sort of New York beat poet lyrics um, that have a lot of I, I I'm drawn towards lyricists who have really unique points of view um, and, and are able to express that in almost literary deliveries. Uh, I'm thinking of guys like, you know, Nicky Wire and Richie James, Max Street Preachers, uh, Tim Kasher from, from Cursive and The Good Life. You know, when he writes a, an album, it's almost as if he's writing a book. Um, Gord Downey from The Tragically Hip, um, those are guys that when I listen to them, as much as I'm listening to the music, I am hanging on every word that he sang. And to me, M. Doherty is in that same realm in terms of lyricists. Some of his songs are very stream of consciousness. Uh, they're not necessarily meant to be taken as singing about a story or, or singing about a, you know, a love song or a, or a song about a relationship. They're more about wordplay and interesting juxtaposition of words and, and melody. And then he does some really interesting songs that are up for interpretation. You know, we take a song like Cassia Tone Nation, which on its face sounds like sort of a silly song. But when you actually break down the lyrics, he's singing about uh, consumerism replacing nationalism, that people care less about the country that they live in and more about the things that they consume, which I think is an interesting observation. The 5% nation of Corduroy. The 5% nation of Marlboro. The 5% nation of Pay-Per-View. The 5% nation of Nipple Clamps. The 5% nation of Milton Bradley. The 5% nation of Casio Tone. The 5% nation of Casio Tone. 5% 
10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, 100. He has songs like uh, Screenwriter's Blues, which is probably one of my two favorite songs on the record, um, which is basically a love letter to L.A., but the very dark and grimy and sort of disturbing aspects of L.A., um, all told through the eyes of a, of a morning DJ. There's so many things to unpack on this record, so many different sounds that are being sampled, things that are being twisted that you don't even realize that they're samples there's multiple tori amos samples on this record but you wouldn't know it listening to it at first blush you'd have to read the interviews and pick up on that stuff there's songs where the andrew sisters and helen wolf are sampled and i think the secret weapon in this band is is the sampler and keyboard player um uh, mark uh degley and tony he just colors this the album with so much interesting stuff and from what I read, they were able to pull it off live pretty seamlessly. Like he was able to do everything that he's doing within this live band setting. And the one thing that I really appreciated going back, which I didn't really pay attention to before, is um, M. Doty's guitar playing. It's a lot more interesting than I really remembered. I thought he was pretty much just strumming a few chords here and there, but there's some songs where he's playing like some pretty intricate, like arpeggio and picking parts. Um, he's got some, some fairly straightforward, like bluesy sort of riffs that are going on, but buried in a lot of these songs are a lot of cool guitar parts that he's doing, um, which would become less and less as the band went on and, be, and, you know, circles has, a distinctive guitar part that carries that song, but a lot of the other stuff was really keyboard and sample based. I'm I'm with the uh, the consensus on our Facebook page in terms of this is a record to me that really stands the test of time. I think it sounds amazing. I think the drum and bass stuff that uh, is going on sound really cool and crisp, and the bass especially just sounds great. And uh, I'm really just. St- can't wait to hear what you have to say about this record. So, Jay? Oh, okay. Um, the sampling is interesting. Uh, parts, it's tough to decipher what is and what isn't. Um, I, I can only assume a lot of what's going on on the right channel is samples. Um, sometimes it sounds like a performance of some other instruments, but regardless, it's a... Um, I think probably the most compelling part of the band for me, um, just in how they, at times it kind of does its own thing and other times it plays more with the band. Um, it's an interesting concept to, to have there. What else? I'm trying to think of some other, something else good. I think when the band plays slower, they connect with me a lot better, a lot more. So a song like true dreams, of Wichita, um, mm-hmm. and the last track, Janine, um, uh, when they're stripped down and <clears throat> at a slower tempo, I, I, there's a lot more mood to the music for me. It evokes emotion. And you can stand on the arms of the Williamsburg Bridge crying, Hey man, well this is Babylon. 
can fire it on a bus to the outside world Down to Louisiana, you can take her with you I've seen the rains of the real world come forward on the plane I've seen the Kansas of your sweet little myth You never seen it, no, I'm half sick on the drinks you mixed start to get in the in the bad parts uh, I don't get a lot of a connection through a lot of the other stuff I don't know what it doesn't really I don't know it's not sad it's not happy it's not uh, funny it's not I don't know it's just kind of there uh, for me mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of times musically but the the darker the the slower stuff gets darker and it gets very like almost cinematic especially uh, true dreams Wichita unfortunately like three minutes it kind of picks up the tempo and it, it goes into what I consider the more typical sound of the record, more of a funk jazz kind of thing. Uh, also, I think on that song, when it's slower and he's singing more, it becomes more compelling to me. Um, again, it feels more emotional, pulls me in. Um, and it shows off his voice, the fact that, you know, it's a distinct, it's definitely a distinct voice. Like, I think he, well, as soon as you hear him, it's memorable, um, mm-hmm. whether or not you like the delivery what he's saying it's i don't know there's something about the tenor of his voice and um the tone of it that's distinct and i think in a song like that you can kind of hear something more um you know a lot of the rest of it is is it's not my it's not my thing you know it's it's jazz it's funk basically some sort of derivative of a, either beat poet or hip hop sort of vocal delivery um lyrically i there's moments where like I, I get pulled in, it seems compelling, and there's other moments that I just despise. Like some of the scatty kind of stuff, like the schoolsy bobsy bombs and the boozly boozy booze and all that crap. Like <laughs> when I hear that I'm just like, I'm out. I don't know where this is going. I, I that doesn't connect with me at all. Um Casio Tone, there's parts of that that do. There's other parts of it that um I don't love. Like the whole counting part that's like I don't know. It seems like a cop out to me. There's things that are uh, guitar wise, nothing really stood out to me. The one thing I did notice was that um, track one and eight are basically the exact same guitar part, just like pitched differently, and then start with the same guitar part. I don't know how you <laughs> remember if you were playing that song, how you remember which song you're playing because they're so like, almost identical. Um, and then track one is Chicago, not Chicago. Uh, I was abing it with um, Stevie Wonder's "I Wish," which. Most people probably know from, I think it was sampled by Will Smith back in the late 90s for mm-hmm. a song he did. But it's almost identical. Like the basically the bass line and the guitar part. Um, Stevie Wonder plays the guitar part on, obviously, on, um, on keyboard and it's a lot more complicated. But if you stripped it down to the basic sequence, like the basic pattern, it's essentially the same as the guitar part here, which I found hmm. interesting. I don't know if they did that on purpose or not, but it's kind of interesting the A and B, the two to two. A man 
know it just it got um by the middle of the record i was unable to decipher distinguish songs from one another it just became the same thing over and over um like i said i thought it ended on a interesting note that kind of was unexpected i think janine is the acoustic thing was was kind of nice to hear um it's quieter there's actually chord changes in it that you can distinguish it's not just like it's not just um rhythm and groove based um, which I can relate to, and I, I, I don't know the the ones that like um, like thirteen, Mister Bitterness. There's a hook in there that I think is pretty cool, but for the most part, the whole song is just the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah, that's not um, one of my favorite songs on the record. It, it's, um, it's an okay track. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to now, think where else there was some hooks. There are some for, hooks here and there, just by the either the the sheer like dedication to repeating the line makes it hooky or uh you know it truly is melodically hooky but there there are some here and there i think track one has one um in fact that song kind of starts with the chorus which is interesting i think helps um so what was your question no, I was just going to say for True Dreams of Wichita, I, the way that I interpreted that song and why it has that part is that it, it's a song about, it's a love song on the road, basically, going to, you know, f- get your, go find your lover. Mm-hmm. But then when it actually happens, he like panics. And that's when it breaks into that up tempo part. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, like, like he starts to doubt what's going on. 
And it like that rush is like the rush of the panic of like, I got it. He starts like, I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta, you know, get out of this. Like he's that's where all the like the lyrics are driving towards. And then mm-hmm. he like settles back down because he has the way that I sort of interpret it is is like he's been dreaming about this thing. And then when he actually gets to that point, he panics because he's like, is it? I'm not sure if this is what I really want. And then ultimately, you know, settles into it. I don't know. I might be overly interpretive, but no, that's that's how I read it when going through the lyrics. And this was the first time I actually like looked up the lyrics, and I, I had some lyrics wrong from what I was hearing, because um, of the way that he pronounces things and the way that he, you know, uh, enunciates certain words. So um, I didn't necessarily have everything exactly right the way that I was hearing it. So it makes me think of you know, as a designer, I'll working with a client i'll uh come up with a great concept and i'll see it through and i'll be dedicated to it and in in a way it has this beauty to me in my head because it it aligns to that concept and it means all these different things and they'll explain to the client and they'll totally appreciate that thinking but then they'll you know essentially be like yeah but i don't like the way it looks (laughs) you know what i mean and that's the way i feel like with that song like I really appreciate the explanation you just gave and the concept there. But when they go to the part, I just don't like the way it sounds. So it's like, <laughs> you know, just like I, I kind of can feel for, for how my clients are sometimes with, with things like that, where it's just like, you know, it's, that's all great. But at the end of the day, like it's all about just how people re- respond to what they hear. They don't get the, the full story and the rationale and that, you know, they don't always have time to spend uh, with it to get to that level. And if they don't, like it at that level and they don't so a lot of mm-hmm. it is me just struggling with you know i just don't connect with a lot of the references and influences here i don't connect with repetitive like da- dance oriented stuff that's you know five minutes of the same rhythm that's you know I, I get the point of it i just don't connect with it i don't connect with jazz really in that in this format um i like jazzy influences like jazzy chords and jazzy elements to other things but not jazz and I, I think we've labored over this point. I don't connect with funk very much. So especially not this interpretation of it, which is very snare heavy. Um, there was a couple songs where I'm like, man, if the drummer played like more kick drum heavy, I probably would dig this way more. But the, you know, if he was really locked in with the bass from a, from a, um, you know, a kick drum standpoint and not from a, a busy snare standpoint, um, I'd be way more into it, but it's just a different kind of funk, you know, different kind of philosophy. And it is what it is. I just don't, uh, I don't relate to it very well. You mentioned liking the, the slower songs more than the up-tempo songs. What did you think of City of Motors? Stuck in the hinge is a sliver of a fingernail. Stuck in the hinge is a sliver of a fingernail. Traced his travel by his credit card. 
No sleep smokes and he's nauseous. No sleep smokes and he's nauseous. Flips an ash like a wild loose comma. Ash hits the oil around the pump. Travels to the pump and the pump explodes. Witness said he saw the car jump. Witness said he saw the car jump. I, I mean, it had some mood to it. Um, it, it conveys more emotion. I think um, the samples in that, <clears throat> it, it reminded me of, of how the samples work in um, True Dreams Wichita in terms of it's it's almost like a, a cinematic, like you're watching a movie and this is like the scene playing um, in the background with the music. Mm-hmm. It gets a little overboard in that song for me, almost to the point of being, I don't know, like... Just just too much. Like I felt like I was um, watching a what do you call it? Like a, a, a those old radio shows where they would be like you know like a play and they would have sound effects in the background. It got too literal, I guess is my point on that one. But um, I would say it's probably in my top three for the record. Okay. Again, again, because it's it just slower and more moody. Um, mm-hmm. It, it and, and, and I mean, pr- from a practical sense, it avoids it avoids some of the stuff I just talked about in terms of the stereo. What I think of a stereotypical jazz funk stuff, like just it was just the nature of being a little bit stripped down and slower. Right. For me, that's one of the songs that I really gravitate towards because it's one of the most straightforward lyrically. He's essentially telling a story, um, and he's telling it Rashomon style, where he's telling it from multiple points of view the same thing happening mm-hmm. which is what i interpret as either it's a an accident or an assassination one or the other is either somebody's killing somebody and planned it out and has gone to great lengths to do it or somebody made a mistake and something b- bad happened and this is the end result mm-hmm. um but i like the way that he uses each verse to tell a part of the story um from a different angle. I think that's, that's really interesting. And I think in terms of setting a mood like that to me is one is like one of the moodiest songs on the mm-hmm. record. Like it sounds like a film noir is going on. Like you're expecting like Humphrey Bogart to show up in this song mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things that I, you mentioned about cinematic is one of the things I really like about a lot of this record is he's able to paint these like really unique and very specific images that you can almost see them in your head what he's talking about um and he does that just on the from the first song where he's uh i I remember this sort of coming up you know because of the circumstances but on the first song the opening line is a man flies a plane into the chrysler building and um you know post 9-11 that was sort of a an odd lyric he does that, and he actually, a lot of the very specific and, I don't know, the lines that stick with me are these lines of, like, almost, like, violence and a lot of, like, uh, like it, in Sugar Free Jazz, you mentioned, like, schools, he bombs, he bombs. Mm-hmm. And then um, in uh, Down to This is essentially, a, I think it's a song about a kidnapping. 
you get the ankles and I'll get the wrists. Um, either that or some sort of sexual uh, play between some mm-hmm. folks. Um, but it sounds more like a kidnapping when you read through the lyrics of, of that song. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a lot of sort of violence and darkness for a lot of songs, which, are, like you mentioned, some of the up-tempo stuff is pretty poppy and um, in a in a beat jazz sort of way. Uh, and it reminds me a lot of the stuff that um, Gord Downey would do from the Tregular Hip, where he would write some of these songs that are pretty poppy and, you know, hooky, but have some really dark lyrics going along with them. Even, you know, Max Street Preachers obviously did that re- repeatedly. <laughs> a lot of dark lyrics um, for songs that were, you know, written for the radio. Um and I always find that to be an incredibly difficult task to pull off to write something that's going to be catchy, but also be disturbing at the same time. I don't, there's not a lot of people can pull that off convincingly. So I think we've pretty much, I don't know. Do you have any additional <laughs> thoughts? I, do you have any additional thoughts on soul coughing that you'd like to share or did you pretty much cover everything? I, I think I pretty much covered it. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of the record sounds the same to me so a lot of the comments i made um were consistent across most of the songs you know so it's like the, the things i liked were pretty much there um on a lot of the songs especially the ones i mentioned and the things i don't like are pretty much on all the songs so have you heard now have you heard songs like super bond bond and and mm-hmm. stuff off of the do you have any sort of uh better or uh, worse connection with those songs uh, uh that song has a lot more attitude to me like it has a, I don't know, like a confident kind of strut to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the I hear it, actually hear it used a lot in uh, like music beds and stuff on sh- TV shows and just it, you know it kind of fits that. Um, so I respond to that. I mean, it has a mood, it has a attitude, it has something that I, I just find a lot of this record to be just limp to me. Other than the film noir stuff, which is I guess interesting to some degree, um, if you're a fan of that, and at least it starts to create some pictures in your mind and um but i find a lot of it just it just doesn't uh, emote enough in any one direction or another but some of the uh, a song like that i think does more so uh, the band's capable of it i guess it's just not always a priority or it's, it's i guess sometimes music just not about that for me although you know 99 percent of the time it is so all right Mind pictures. <laughs> Painting pictures. Painting pictures with your mind. Yes. Let's talk about final ratings on this album, Jay. Uh, I'm at a worthy album. To me, uh, this record stands the test of time. I think it sounds great. I would love to get this on vinyl, but I don't think it's available unless you want to pay like a ridiculous amount of money. Um, there's only a few songs that I don't... It's a 14-song record. I'd probably knock off maybe two of them and make them B sides, but there's, there's, I don't think there's for me and my taste. I don't find there to be a bad song in this record. There's just a few that don't uh, stand up to some of the other ones. Um, I did find myself. I remember when I first got this record, my favorite songs back then tended to be like "Down to This" and "Is Chicago Is Not Chicago," and now they are more screenwriters blues and. City of Motors, um, True Dreams. Uh, my my tastes have changed within the band 
a little bit. So I, I did find that a little bit interesting. So I'm curious, Jay, um, what'd you end up on for Ruby Room? Uh, I'll, I'm sure I'll get uh, disappointed. Either disappoint some folks or anger some folks, depending on the uh, scale there. But uh, I'm at a single. It's you know, it's not my thing. I I, I think it was fun to listen to it's to some degree sonically you know in headphones because I, I think from a production standpoint like you said um it does sound good just take away what the music is and any of that just listen to the instruments and the production um and it sounds interesting with those with those samples in there how they're mixed but uh from a song standpoint i'm probably at one maybe two songs that i enjoy all right well folks we tried to get uh, Jay on board with soul coughing, but what are you going to do? I know. I'm not as evolved as some folks. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> That's right, Jay. I'm hey, a kid from Cleveland. I don't know anything about beauty poetry. There is, Sorry. Well, I don't either, but it's still something that I, you know, I can find some appreciation for. But I understand, you know, hey, this didn't collect, connect with the mainstream. It's not like just sold 15 oh, million yeah. records. And, you know, I mean, this is yeah. this is definitely an acquired taste. I am, I'm not, obviously not alone. Otherwise, we would not be reviewing this record. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I think that just as a quick diversion towards the end here, I think that as a songwriter, I find it interesting that um, Mike Doherty's really evolved into a much more streamlined songwriter. He doesn't write these sorts of beat poet, you know, extreme of consciousness type songs anymore. They tend Mm -hmm. to be, you know, singer, songwriter, acoustic guitar. He's got his delivery, which, you know, when I mentioned the guys that I like as, as singers and as, and as uh, vocalists and lyricists, they tend to have a very specific vocal delivery. You know, he's probably closer to Gord Downey than he is Tim Kasher. But, you know, he's got that nasally sort of um, deadpan delivery and it works well for him for a certain segment of an audience. And he's able to or he's been able to refine that and actually turn it into some pretty catchy pop songs. Like I mentioned earlier that um, looking at the world through uh, the bottom of looking at the world from the bottom of a well, which was kind of a a minor hit that got onto a couple TV shows and whatnot and, you know, put him on Letterman and that sort of thing. And he had a song like 27 Jennifer's and he's always been able to find like some really good pop hooks just sort of in his weird and unique way. And I think that's good. I mean, I think it's good to have a guy like him writing those sort of weird pop songs and, you know, having that audience that will sell, you know, or that will buy 20 or 30,000 copies of a CDR. Yeah, I get I get the sense I'd probably like his solo stuff better. I, I think the format here is just different. I mean, it it seems like it's a it's a band uh, probably you know writing this stuff and and just riffing and just playing these um, these grooves, and he's just working over top of it. Potentially, you might actually like I, be. Sorry, go ahead. I, I, I some of these songs I it would be tough to imagine like writing them on an acoustic guitar. They're just not that mm-hmm. kind of song. You might Whereas be interested when, then in the, in the album that he did where he remade the songs. Cause he's not happy with some of this stuff. He feels oh, it's okay. like too produced and too much samples. And, you know, so he went back and re-recorded a bunch mm-hmm. like 13 soul coughing songs with like a live band with new music okay. and 
So you might want to check that out. Mm. I haven't had a chance to yet, um, but he crowdfunded it on, um, you know, through Pledge Music and uh, put that out last year. So I think part of the reason why was also so that he could control publishing um, right. some of that stuff. Yeah, a lot of artists are doing that now, like re-recording their music so that he can get that uh, get that back. So they, yeah. it's actually the recordings. He probably doesn't own these recordings. Um, whatever the label is, still owns them. Yeah. So to get any money off these songs, you have to re-record them. All right. So that is our two individual unique takes on Soul Coughing and their 1994 album Ruby Vroom. If you would like to suggest an album for us to review, head on over to our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com and you can suggest an album for us to review. And I also want to remind people, if you like what you heard, head on over to our iTunes page and leave us some positive feedback. I want to thank everybody for checking us out on our various outlets, whether they be... uh, Radio IO or Stitcher or what have you. Next week, we'll be going in a complete opposite direction. And we'll be taking, checking out the debut album from Steve Albini's band, Shellac. I guarantee you'll find no jazzy rhythms or upright bass on that particular hmm. record. Jay, have you ever listened to Shellac? Uh, yeah, I think I've given it a spin or two in the past. So we're going to get into that. We're going to get into some schlack, their debut record at Action Park. Cool. That's it. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. To Los Angeles. It is 5 a.m. And you are listening. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. 